the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. WTBN, Pinellas Park. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. This tribe in Fiji feels like they're cursed because their chief ate this missionary. And so now they're trying to appease I I guess they're gods. They're trying to also to appease the family. They have actually given gifts to the descendants of this missionary because they think there's a curse and that they're being punished for what their chief did many, many years ago. The idea of family curses is very deeply rooted in cultures and religions all around the world. Some people feel as though they can't really get free from things that their ancestors did generations before them. Today on Verse by Verse, we will begin looking at a passage from the Bible which may seem at first to teach that this is true. Welcome to another edition of Verse by Verse. Our teacher is Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. It is true that we all feel the consequences of sin in our lives. We are also impacted by the sinful choices of people around us, especially those who are close to us, like our family. However, these are the results of sin itself. Sin is ugly, and it causes a great deal of pain and heartache without even taking into consideration the special judgment of God. So, even though our lives are affected by someone else's sin and its consequences, it is important to remember that we are not being judged for a sin that someone else has done. Pastor Steve has much more to say on this topic, so let's rejoin his sermon now. See, anytime you use an object in your worship, that object inevitably must become an idol that you worship. You, you, you can't avoid that. You can't avoid that. But lest you think, well, whew, I'm glad I don't do that kind of stuff. I don't bow down to pictures and I don't, I don't have statues and I've always obeyed the second commandment. You might want to think again. I want to think again. The prohibition against images in worshiping God also involves any mental pictures you have about God. Any mental pictures, like when I think of God, I like to think of him as an old man, white hair and a full beard, and and he's sitting on his throne. That is what the second commandment says, don't do, don't do. Or when I, when I pray, I, I like to think of, uh, of God as a kind mother or a tender father. It's wrong. Or when I think of God, I like to think of Jesus. So um, I picture him as six foot two with dark, long hair, piercing eyes, a full beard. In fact, he looks like an Englishman, an English nobleman out of the uh, Renaissance here. I can assure you he didn't look like that. But you don't have to be concerned what he looked like. God doesn't tell us in his word what he looked like. That's not to be the focus. How about this? How about it would, it would burst some of our images? How about if Jesus was maybe uh, four foot 11 with kinky hair, maybe pock skinned uh, face, 
and maybe spoke in a squeaky voice. Maybe he was balding. How's that for an image? I only say, I don't want you to be thinking about that when you're praying either. But the point is, you're not supposed to have those kind of images in your mind. And I, and I realize that we, we have pictures of Jesus or what we think, what an artist says, and for Sunday school materials for children. But you still need to be alert. You still need to be alert not to use those mental images of Jesus to worship him. Otherwise, you are violating this commandment and you are entering into the arena of idolatry. And be careful, certainly, that you don't use any religious symbol that uh, use it as a piece of worship. Listen, if this beautiful cross behind me ever becomes a piece of worship here, we'll take it down. It's not. There should be no religious relic that you need to have to feel closer to God. That's that's a great danger. In fact, I'm glad that in the search for Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat, we haven't found it. Probably there, we'd worship it. We'd get some wood from it and say, this is holy wood. And for $25, you can get a little piece of this. And that's, that's what happens. You don't want to do that. We would turn anything into an idol. That, that's probably the reason why God hasn't given us the original manuscripts of the New Testament. We'd worship that. We'd worship that, even though we said, well, it just makes me feel close to the Lord, thinking that Paul touched this paper. That, that's how far it goes. Jesus made it very clear as he explained the essence of true worship to the Samaritan woman. Those who worship the Father, he said, must, it's not an option, must worship him in spirit and in truth. And what he meant by that is essentially that true worship is internal. It stems from the heart. It is a heartfelt reverence of the Lord, obeying him in your soul. It is, it is not just going through outward motions. It is inward. That's what he means in spirit. He means in your spirit in your heart. And when he said in truth, it means that we always worship the Lord based on truth, the truth of his word. His word reveals his character. We don't, we don't base our worship on what we think he looks like or some image we come up with. See, any worship that involves some object or image always portrays God in a way that is not truthful. God is not like any picture. God is not like any image. It completely misrepresents him, and therefore you end up worshiping an idol. You're certainly not worshiping God. Our worship of God is only valid when it is based on what the the Bible, the Word of God, tells us about him. So, folks, that is the first truth that comes out of the second commandment. It's the heart of it. Reveals that we are forbidden to use any images in worshiping the true God. His Word is sufficient to tell us what he's like. There's a second truth revealed in the second commandment. It's this. God gives the reason for the forbiddance of images. Verse 5, you shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. The reason God puts a ban on all images in worshiping him is because he's jealous. And it's a pure jealousy. It's not a, obviously, it's not a sinful jealousy. When we think of jealousy, usually it's tainted by our sin. Not always, but usually. But God's jealousy is pure and it's holy. He has every right to be jealous. We don't have a right to be jealous. We don't, we don't own anything, really. It's all been given to us by God. But God has a right to be jealous because he has everything. Someone defined God's jealousy this way. They said, and I quote, God's jealousy is not like the human emotion we call jealousy. God's jealousy is not a passion that rises and, and falls in response to some stimulus he doesn't control. Instead, God's jealousy is a fixed and immutable meaning unchangeable, disposition against everything that would undermine or diminish his creature's love for him. God's jealousy is nothing like the uncontrollable passions we experience. His jealousy is a deliberate 
an unchanging contempt for everything that challenges his rightful place as sovereign God. That's God's jealousy. And so the thought is this, if you're a Christian, then you've given your heart to Christ. You, you said, Lord, I will love you with an undivided heart. I will love you being faithful and loyal with, with total allegiance to you. you. I have surrendered to your lordship. I don't have any other rivals for you. And like a husband who is jealous for not only his wife's love, but his wife's purity as well, God is jealous for our love. God is jealous for us to have pure devotion, that our pure devotion be reserved for him. You know, Israel often went astray, and God called it adultery. Adultery, that's what it is. It's spiritual adultery when you have other, other images and other gods and mental pictures, and, and it's not pure worship based on the truth of, of Scripture. It's really, it's spiritual fornication is what it is. Both the Old Testament as well as the New Testament address that. God will tolerate, as we said last week, no other rivals for our affection. He wants it all. And, and folks, this refers not, not just to some object, but for anything in your heart, as we said last week. Anything in your heart that, that has become too important to you, that you enjoy that more than you enjoy God. As we went over last week, it could be a person, could be, could be a career, it could be a hobby, it could be... Sports, I mentioned last week about my love for the Giants and someone came up to me after and said, I have the same problem as you. And I said, oh, are you a Giants fan too? That wasn't what he was saying, but we all have that. And listen, you can enjoy those things, but, but don't delight in them more than you delight in the Lord. Dethrone those idols in your heart. God will tolerate no other rivals for our affection. He wants it all and he has every right to have it. And those who try to worship him with, with images and, and get into idolatry, not only is it wicked, not only is it wrong, but God in his jealousy will deal in punishment to those who, who disobey him. This is a ser- there are serious consequences for disobedience to this command. And that moves us to the third truth found in this commandment. The first is don't worship God using an image. Secondly, the reason is that he's jealous. He's jealous. He wa- I mean, it's amazing that God would even care about our love, let alone be, be jealous for it. But he is. But there are the consequences for disobedience and as well as obedience to the second commandment. Notice verses 5 and 6 again. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, these words are a sober warning of the importance of obedience to this commandment. This is not to be taken lightly. I'm afraid, though, that people have not only been confused about this, but have been uh, uh, unnecessarily troubled by these words. And I'll, and I'll tell you why. What so often troubles people as they look at this is that, at surface glance, it looks as if the Lord is saying that he punishes children and he punishes grandchildren and even, even great-grandchildren because of the sins of their fathers. Or we could broaden it to say their parents. And they look at the words, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations, and they conclude that something like this, well, if I grew up in a home where my dad was an alcoholic, I'm doomed. I'm doomed to be an alcoholic. I, I, I can't escape it. It's like a curse. It's a curse on me and my children and, and grandchildren. 
Or if you grew up in a home where there was abusiveness, physical or sexual abuse, you look at this and you say, I can't avoid it. I'm, I'm destined to have that. And that's a, that's a horrible, horrible thing. I was just uh, reading recently, it caught my attention in the news. I like to look up on the internet weird news, weird but true. And believe it or not, there is a tribe in Fiji, and that's what caught my attention because Michelle and I were in uh, Fiji this, uh, this summer. But there is a tribe in Fiji who uh, feels like there's a curse on them. They're very, very poor. And they've been poor for many years. And you know why they say they're poor? Because years ago in the 1800s, the chief of this tribe ate a missionary. They, they were the fiercest cannibals. And he ate a Methodist missionary. And they fear, and they fear, feel now that that's, they're being punished. They're being punished. The, uh, the, the people in Fiji were the most fierce cannibals. I'll, it's just before lunch, so I'll not mess up your, your lunch by telling you what they did. But I remember when we had the graduation for all the pastors and Christian workers, and they were shaking hands with Michelle and, and me. It went through my mind, you know what, a hundred years ago, and they're not shaking my hands. You know, I hope they don't backslide and, uh, and revert to cannibalism. But I'm, as they're smiling at me, I'm thinking, wow, this, these people, a hundred years ago, they're not smiling at me. That's why I was going to point to Michelle. There. <laughs> No, not true. Not true. I'd point to somebody else, not Michelle. <laughs> but anyway, this, tr- this tribe in Fiji feels like they're cursed because their chief ate this missionary. And so now they're trying to appease, I, I guess they're gods. They're trying to also to appease the family. They have actually given gifts to the descendants of this missionary because they think there's a curse and that they're being punished for what their chief did many, many years ago. Well, they're in darkness, and we're not to be in darkness. This verse is not saying that God punishes you for the sins of your parents. In fact, Scripture is very clear. It indicates it here, but it's very clear in Ezekiel chapter 18. I'd like you to turn there. Ezekiel chapter 18, that no one is punished for the sins of anybody else. If you're punished and dealt with on your sin, for your sins, and you are, God does it for yours and yours alone, not because of somebody else in your family or anyone else. Ezekiel chapter 18, and it might, might take some uh, traveling around the Old Testament to get there, but you'll eventually get there. You'll go to Jeremiah, and then you'll find Ezekiel. If you go to Daniel, you've gone too far. Ezekiel chapter 18, starting at verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying the fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge? What this means is that the Jewish people were in Babylon at the time during the captivity, and they were complaining. And in their complaining, they came up with a proverb that they were suffering for the sins of their fathers and not for their own sins. They were saying, in essence, our fathers ate the sour grapes, Years ago, they did that, not us, but, but we're suffering because sour grapes are terrible, and we're suffering for it. We're paying the penalty for it. We're in captivity because of the sins of our fathers. What they were doing, in essence, was blaming God for punishing them unjustly. That, that's what they were doing. This is a horrible accusation, and that's why God responds to it in verse 3. As I live, declares the Lord God, you are surely not to use this proverb in Israel anymore. I don't want to hear it. It's not right. And then God explains, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins will die. 
you're being dealt with for your own sin. And he clarified that very clearly. If you notice in verse 20, just look down at verse 20. Now, he, he kind of goes through the whole chapter explaining this, but I think because time is limited, it'd be just helpful to focus in on verse 20. The person whose sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. I don't think that there's any way you can make that clearer. That's what God is saying. God does not judge you for your parents' sin. He judges you for your own sin. In fact, this truth is even evidence in the second commandment. If you look back at Exodus 20, verse 5, even if you did not know that there's a passage in Ezekiel 18, you could know just from Exodus 20, verse 5, because the last phrase of verse 5, he says this, of those who what? Hate me. The people he's dealing with concerning their iniquity are those who who hate me. In other words, only those who continue in the same evil that their fathers did in idolatry will suffer the same consequences of their father. They're suffering not because of their father, but because they hate me too. So let me explain what this means. You know what it doesn't mean? It doesn't mean that that God says you're going to be punished for what your parents did. They'll be dealt with for what they did, and you'll be dealt with for what you did, and I'll be dealt with for what I did. But the point of this, of, of saying he visits the iniquities on children and their children, when a man practices idolatry, and you can broaden it to beyond idolatry, to any sin, the damaging effects of his sin run so deep in a family that it can and will be felt for several generations. That's the point. It influences everyone around him, and those around him would be his family. In the ancient Jewish context, what he's saying here, where parents and children and grandchildren often live together, you understand that? They live together. You didn't have it like in our day. You might have parents in one city and children across the country. Everybody was together. And and if they lived long enough, you could even have grandchildren. They were all under the the same roof. It meant that the sin of a parent would very likely be followed by the children and grandchildren who were constantly exposed to that sin. They were in the home. In other words, if you choose to worship an idol in your life, then your children most likely are going to pick up on that example. That's, that's what you have modeled for them. Why wouldn't they choose that? It's, we're told in Joshua 24 that Abraham was raised in a family of idolaters. That's why Abraham was an idolater, and, but God revealed to him who he really was. There's only one true God, but Abraham is just following the example of his parents. And this certainly isn't limited to the sin of idolatry. Fathers and mothers set examples for their children to follow. And when they are sinful examples, then children often emulate what they have observed. That's what he's saying. He's saying that if there's a sin that's so prevalent in your life, your children are going to pick up on that. Everyone who sees it's going to pick up on that who's, who's in the context of the home. And that's why God deals with them because if you're an idolater, more than likely, they're going to be little idolaters. That's, that's the point. And you know what? This is a vicious cycle. It's a vicious cycle. That's why so many of the same sins keep reoccurring in the same families. It has nothing to do with some superstitious curse. Nothing to do with that, like, like what they're thinking in Fiji. That's just superstition. That, that is paganism. That's not what the Bible teaches. But it does have everything to do with bad behavior learned from a parent. That's the point. It takes takes time to weed that out. 
But the good news is that the cycle can be broken. You don't have to wait to, to weed it out until everybody dies out because ultimately children will pass it on to their children, pass it on to their children, and so forth. But the cycle can be broken. That's why verse 6 tells us this. But showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. God blesses with loving kindness those who love him and obey his word. See, you can break the cycle of sin in your family when you turn from that sin by putting away from your life anything that has become an idol. And instead, you turn to Jesus Christ as the only true God. And you repent of your sin and you trust him as Lord and Savior. You come with humility, knowing that you deserve judgment, but Christ has taken the judgment of sinners upon himself and you're convicted that you're a sinner and therefore you turn to him to save you and you you entrust your life to him. You can be forgiven because Christ paid for every sin. I remember thinking a few years ago, to my knowledge, I am I am the first one in my family who's ever come to Christ. I don't mean my immediate family. I don't I don't know back years ago, though exposure so much to the Old Testament I don't know who was a believer. And I, and I have prayed many times, Lord, uh, I am part of, of a rebellious house, of the house of Israel. But from this point on, I want, I want my family and every Kreloff after me to, to follow you. I want my house to observe you. And I want to break the cycle of all the rebellion and all the, the legalism and all the, the, uh, all the stuff that went on before. I want us to have a relationship with you. You can do that too. If you've never come to Christ, I urge you to do that. Put away the idols. And, and the biggest idol in our life is ourselves. Put that away and turn to Christ. Secondly, if you do know Christ already, then that's part of sanctification. If you're convicted of any, anything in your life that's too big, that's too important, put it away. Because not only will God deal with you about that, he'll deal with your children. They'll pick up on that. And your grandchildren and, and their children. Stop the cycle now. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you that you have chosen to deal with us, Lord. Deal with us in the heart. And I pray that you'll take the truths of the second commandment, Lord, and apply them uniquely to our lives. May there be no images that we have of you. May we we not reduce the grand, majestic God of Scripture to an image in our minds. Lord, may there be a sense in which you don't, we don't feel totally comfortable in coming to you, that you are ungraspable, you are mysterious, that we're still in awe of you, that we haven't figured you out. Thank you for that. And I pray that uh, the enlightenment of your word would transform our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our God is a powerful God, capable of breaking the cycles of sin that have existed for generations in our families. No matter what the sin is or how deeply rooted it may be in your heritage, God can deliver you and help you to establish a new heritage, one of godliness and blessing. We here at Verse by Verse would like to help you to experience that life of transformation and blessing. If you have questions about today's message, or perhaps you just need to talk to someone further about experiencing God's forgiveness and life-changing power, please give us a call. We would be glad to talk with you and pray for you. Our phone number is 727-239-0306. Pastor Steve is really just getting started in this series of messages on the Ten Commandments, and we still have eight more commandments to examine. 
These biblical studies provide a practical look at these ancient laws that have shaped our society and impacted the world. We encourage you to keep tuning in and invite a friend to listen as well. If you have missed any of our lessons to date, you can still hear them by listening online. Just visit our website at versebyverseradio.org and click on the Listen Now button near the top of the page. You can choose from a long list of messages that have previously aired on our radio program. So take a moment and browse the topics there. It's a great opportunity to stockpile some godly teaching that you can listen to whenever you want. No matter where you go these days, it seems that you can count on hearing someone say, Oh my God, or something like that. It is even quite common in churches. It seems to have become an accepted expression, even among believers. But is it an expression that is acceptable to God? In our next broadcast of Verse by Verse, Pastor Steve will be answering this question and many more as he begins his study of the third commandment, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Please be sure to join us then. You've been listening to Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. This program was pre-recorded. To learn more, including how to donate to this ministry, visit versebyverseradio.org. That's verse by... There's a lot going on right now. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.